Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, I have two guests with me. I have Alicia Weeks um, with Niche Therapy and then Camille Ferris, who is a uh, speech therapy provider who actually has a lot of experience with feeding therapy. So I have both of you guys joining me today because I wanted to do a dedicated podcast specifically on speech therapy and feeding therapy because um, I was just telling you before I hit the record button that um, I feel as though the natural crescendo when families start going down the road with a special needs child is most often, especially on our littler guys, um, they end up um, maybe not meeting a milestone and a pediatrician will um, refer them for speech therapy because usually we see that their language isn't um, coming on target and where we would expect it to be at certain milestones. And so speech therapists are onboarded um, pretty immediately. A lot of kids will qualify for speech in that zero to three category, because when we talk about that zero to three infant toddler network here in the state of Washington, um, a lot of times they'll uh, get eligibility based on communication delays. And so I thought this is a good place to start with talking to you guys about speech therapy. So let's kind of talk about there's so much to cover in such a short period of time. We may end up breaking this into two different podcasts. So this could become part one or depending on how we get through all of the stuff in my mind, I want to ask you guys questions about. Um, it may it, it may be one, it may be broken into two. First, I should back up and say, Alicia, you have had the pleasure of working with my family because you are Caleb's current speech language pathologist. And you've been with us for, gosh, we've been seeing you two or three years. I think we started seeing you when he was wrapping up. No, he was maybe just starting the fifth grade. He was going to be moving into the fifth grade and Caleb now is a seventh grader. So you've been with us for quite a while. Um, And so one of the things I want to make sure that we're talking about is I want to talk about kind of the littler guys and how we use um, speech therapy for our littler guys. Like I said, in that zero to three and even through five, but I also want to make sure that we talk about speech therapy and how those goals kind of change. Because one thing I've noticed is that at a certain point, once your kiddo starts communicating more effectively, a lot of times, or they hit a certain age, um, we start seeing them transition out of speech therapy. And we're kind of one of the odd ones where um, Caleb's actually, he's 12 and he's um, going to be 13 here um, in January. And we still are hitting speech therapy hard because um, Caleb still has challenges with communication, it just looks a little bit different when kids get older, um, as opposed to when they're younger and they're just developing their language skills. So maybe let's talk about that. We'll talk about articulation. When we're talking about speech therapy, let's talk about articulation. Specifically, Alicia, would you mind talking about how, and we can talk about that zero to three, like how those kids end up, what are parents looking for that would indicate that, wow, speech therapy might be something that we need to look at? Sure. I think the biggest indicator that speech therapy is going to be something you want to look at is, you know, can you understand your child? If you have a three-year-old and you are their parent who is an active participant in their life on a daily basis, and you're like, I have no idea what this kid is saying. 
pretty much ever, that would be a great red flag or a great time to, you know, talk to your pediatrician and maybe move towards that referral for speech language pathology. Um, as your kid gets older, obviously that's going to change. Um, you know, we know kind of just developmental milestone wise by age five, children should be about 90% or more intelligible to an unfamiliar listener. So by the time they're getting ready to go to kindergarten or finishing that last year of pre-K, you know, pretty much anyone should be able to understand them. And then, you know, we know um, there are different developmental milestones in terms of when different sounds appear. So Camille and I were actually talking about this last night. If I have a four-year-old that's on my caseload and they have difficulty with R, that child really doesn't actually qualify for articulation therapy. R is a much later developing sound. So it's, you know, from the age of like 1.8 through age eight is when those different sounds come into play, kind of just depending on the like motor complexity that's required to make each sound. That's a really good point because I do. Um, so both my kids, I've had Isaac and then Caleb and both of them saw speech therapists. And for Isaac, you're absolutely right. I do remember at different periods of time, because he was in the zero to three infant toddler network and he first became eligible for, for that infant toddler network because of the language delay. And so I'm going to pause there because I want to have you talk specifically about expressive and receptive language, because for us, with Isaac, expressive his ability to express language and, and us even understanding him, let alone someone that's not in our family, um, was like zero. And then also, um, there was a definite indicator that receptively he was not understanding anything that we were communicating to him. Caleb was a different story because um, receptively he understood a hundred percent of what we were saying, but, and even expressively his articulation was actually quite good. So initially with Caleb, when we had concerns about Caleb, it was not because of articulation issues. And we'll talk a little bit about the reason why Caleb started speech therapy, because his was more of like um, elements of communication that had us concerns, how he was using communication became a concern later on. But so let's talk about receptive and expressive language because those are, are two parts of language. Would you mind talking and explaining what those are? Sure, yeah. So expressive language, kind of just the simplest way to think about it is your ability to communicate with the outside world. So it is your ability to speak or your ability to write. And can that be understood by a listening partner or by someone who's reading your writing. Obviously, there's a lot of different elements that go into that, but that's kind of like the simplest definition. We'll start there. Receptive language is your ability to understand and interpret things in the world around you. So your ability to take auditory information and understand that, and then also your ability to read. Expressive language kind of a little bit more fine-tuned, or if we think about when we have like a disorder of expressive language, you can have a disorder like dysgraphia, which means that your writing ability is out of sync with your oral language ability. So you can string a sentence together when you're speaking and you go to write and it's like the words are out of order, the letters are really misshapen and misformed. So you can have that challenge within expressive language, or you can have someone who has like a global... Um, expressive language challenge. So both their writing and their speaking are disorganized and not effective forms of communication. I think adding into that too, if we think about um, individuals who are using AAC 
or augmentative and alternative communication. So that's like our communication devices. So like a PEX program or uh, something like Proloquo or a speech to text on the iPad, that would qualify as expressive language. Obviously, there are going to be some components of receptive language in that, but they're using something else to kind of modify their ability to speak. And when you mentioned the word text, that's actually an abbreviation, an acronym, if you will, for picture exchange, correct? Yes. Yes. And we used to use those back in the day with Isaac, because again, um, he receptively was not processing what we were trying to communicate. So there's a lot of just, you know, meltdown behaviors. And so we used the text picture exchange, because again, that visual support for him, for us to be able to point to, we're going to, you know, it's time for a bath and we would point to the bathtub. And we would mm-hmm. say it, but then we would use the pictures. And then he was like, oh, I understand now. And so we were, that was really, I mean, I kept a, it was a, I had a little notebook that with Velcro pictures that I would keep in my purse. Yep. And, you mm-hmm. know, we would take it everywhere because we needed them. We would have them on the refrigerator because, you know, he, again, he wasn't understanding what we were saying to him, let alone then us being able to communicate what his needs and wants were. When we talk about Caleb for expressive language, he actually didn't start speech therapy. You know, we really never sought it out because from a clinical perspective, he didn't have any articulation and any issue with, you know, strings, words together and creating sentences where we started having some challenges and knowing some of the deficits was how he was being able to use language to fully express those thoughts and ideas that were in his head. So he could sit there and articulate a lot of meaningful information about things that were um, factually interesting to him, but it's much more difficult for him to then be able to put some expressive language to thoughts, feelings, and how things would relate to other things. And so that's when, so he was much older, actually later in elementary school, when we started receiving speech therapy, and it was actually more introduced in the school setting. And then we picked up um, private sessions outside of that later on, just because we were noticing some other things. Um, for one, Caleb does have dysgraphia. And so again, what that, how we were seeing that is, you know, he has a lot of ideas and things in his head that he really struggles to be able to get out through pen to paper. Interestingly enough, Alicia, and you know this to be true, and feel free, we're going to be using Caleb as an example because we can, because he's mine and I give permission. But interestingly for Caleb is that his ability to get um, those ideas in his head strung together in a meaningful way that fully captures what he's trying to communicate. But when we put a pen and paper in front of him, it's still very difficult for him to get it there. But yet, if we were to put a keyboard in front of him or technology where he can type it out, it seems much smoother, right, Alicia? We've kind of, um, and is that something that you are not surprised about? Or as, you know, we have two speech therapists here, is that something that you both have experienced and is commonplace for some kiddos with communication challenges? Um, from my experience and what research is telling us is that with dysgraphia, typing is, sorry, that's okay. We love animals. Typing is a lot easier because, um, you know, when you're writing, you have to call upon the form of the letter in your brain and then get that out of your hand and or out through your hand. And if you have difficulty with that orthographic processing piece, that's a really challenging task. So when you're typing, those letters are all right there in front of you and you just have to select which one you need. I'm learning so much because I've always like been like, it's so, I just I would tell everybody, it's like, it's the weirdest thing. Like we can't write the stuff, but if we put a keyboard in front of it, we can get the information out, but it never really, it, you're absolutely right. When you're actually sitting down and writing, and I know this to be true for myself, 
when I sit down with a pen and paper, sometimes I'm like, man, like I, I'm 44 years old and I still have trouble writing some of these letters and get the, getting them in the right order and whatnot. But you're right, because when you're pen to paper, you're actually having to remember how to form those letters and put them all together. So I just, I got, I became smarter today. So thank you for that. <laughs> Can you explain to me another thing that um, has always been on Caleb's radar? And obviously Isaac was four when he passed away. So um, we were just starting to get language and I did hear him actually say, um, love you before he passed away. But, you know, he didn't even actually have a word to call me mama, believe it or not. It was kind of more of a sort of a thing. And I was like, that's his mama. I'm going to, I'll accept that as his version of mama. He like, so when we talk about with Caleb, social pragmatics, I see that coming up a lot in a lot of his assessments. We just had his new um, school assessment because it was three years and social pragmatics came up again. And that was always, I mean, I have since Googled it and I, I do feel comfortable for people that are listening where social pragmatics come into play. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So social pragmatics is our our functional use of language in the world. So we can have like language competency, which says that we can make a sentence that makes sense. We understand how words go together. We can use grammatical morphemes. So like I can take the word run and turn it into the word running. But that social pragmatic piece is kind of that last piece of language where we are able to have a conversation with another person. So it brings into play things like turn-taking or also using appropriate context in different settings. So, you know, I know when I'm with my friends that I can speak a certain way versus when I'm working or um, in class, I need to raise my hand before I speak. So it's kind of all of those different social normities come into play. And then also the ability to change what we're saying to make sure our message is being delivered. So that brings into play something that's called like metacognition or metalinguistics. That's our ability to think about our language. So if I, you know, Holly, if I said something to you that was like, you know, something straight out of like one of my graduate school textbooks. And I, you know, saw that look on your face that was like giving me clues. Oh, she doesn't understand what I'm saying. And I rephrased it and, you know, put it into more common language. That would be an example of that use of social pragmatics. So I'm looking to you for clues and I'm, I'm changing my language accordingly. It's also, um, I like to think of it as like language flexibility. So it's the ability to say something with the same meaning, but say it in an endless amount of ways to make a statement into a question to do those different things as well, kind of come into that very high level language skill. And again, it's all about assuring that your message is getting received by your communication partner. Camille, do you have anything else that you want to add to that? Um, no, just personal anecdotes. <laughs> I always oh, have a kid. No, I love those. I, I always have a kid in my mind when I'm thinking about certain skills that we're discussing. Touching on that, I I have a client who is very excited to tell me about video games, which I know nothing about. And so what I try to do as a therapist is make very obvious facial expressions or gestures like, I don't, it's not coming across. Can you give me more clues? And a lot of times I have to explicitly tell them, I don't know anything about that. You know, what's a way that you can you can check with your communication partner. What's a way that you can ask them? Like, are you understanding? Do you know about this? You know, we kind of have to start at the beginning of, hey, do you know this video game? Whereas 
kind of like you were saying, Holly, being able to, um, you know, there's on one end, you know, a lot about a certain thing, but being able to relate it to someone else, you know, instead of just saying facts about it, being able to converse about it with somebody and have them understand. You're so right, Camille. And that's actually, you've never met Caleb because you actually are in the state of Colorado. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. I am in Denver. But you've never met, never met Caleb, but Alicia and I have been working with Caleb on years because it's like, Hey, Caleb, we need to step back a little bit because he forgets in the context of the world that Alicia is not just magically like watching his whole life so that she has the context to understand what he's talking about. You know what I mean? And, and that was actually one of my mom's biggest frustrations early on, which was why we started looking into speech therapies. You know, she would make the comment, um, boy, I sure love Caleb, but like, uh, I don't speak Caleb. And I'm like, well, he's totally easy to understand. She says, it's not that it's just, I don't understand the context. Like he all of a sudden will start up a conversation with me as if I know what he's talking about. And so that was one of those, that social pragmatics piece where he would just walk up to, you know, my mom who hasn't seen him in an entire week and out and start having this conversation as though she was walking around with him like two hours or the day before. And so that was that indicator to us, the social pragmatics of the, you know, we need, we need some help with this. Like, how do we start teaching him those elements of like what you're saying, checking to under, make sure or watching for facial features to indicate like, I'm lost here. Can you explain that again? Or can you pick up from this point and explain to me how this relates to X, Y, and Z? Because that's really in our world where, you know, again, articulation was always something he was very strong. He could put together appropriate sentences. It was that social pragmatics later on that we were like, ah, yeah, this is going to be a problem, a big problem. But for me, it's like, I don't know how to teach this. How do we break this apart and start teaching him in a way that he has the skills and he will stop himself and then do exactly what you're saying, Camille, reading those facial features of like, or somebody zoning out and not listening to him because Mm -hmm. frankly, they're lost. He's over there. Mm -hmm. People zone out. Yeah. So so that's a really good point. Um, Since we were just talking to Camille, Camille, we have you on this podcast because you, I understand are kind of the feeding guru. You have some experience with feeding therapy and um, I think that, you know, early on when we talk about zero to three, I see more kids in that zero to three range that requires some feeding support. Would you mind explaining to us kind of what feeding therapy is and like kind of what you do as a practitioner to work with um, kiddos when it comes to feeding and swallowing specifically? Absolutely. So just a little background on where I practice um, therapy. I am home health based. So I go to my families to do evaluations and to treat. So most of the time when I get a feeding evaluation, the first thing I look at is how old is this child? So if we're talking early intervention, zero to three, most of those kids, I kind of, they fall into one of two categories. They're either infants who are having difficulty with bottle feeding or they are toddlers, our young young kiddos, who for whatever reason have dysphagia, which is disordered swallowing, or they have sensory feeding difficulties, meaning they they could become a picky eater. So there's there are these different avenues that I have to kind of ask families when I meet them, like, hey, why am I seeing you today? Usually I'll do that on a phone call before I meet them. Question here, Camille. 
So yeah. how, like, how is it determined that, that a referral to you for an assessment is warranted? Is it because of failure to thrive? Is it just because of latching issues? Or, is, you know, I'm, I'm guessing this is through their well-child visits periodically that they're going to see their, their pediatrician. Yes, absolutely. All of our referrals are from pediatricians. So they are under, they are required to be under a doctor's care because their doctor signs off on, on our plan of cares. And we do have to update the doctor every two months on their progress. So there is that check-in with the pediatrician who referred them. So the feeding kiddo that I have on my, my schedule right now came to me because of prematurity. And so developmentally, they were behind in a lot of ways. So they're getting multiple therapies besides me, but we were working on like latching and being able to, to finish a bottle. So some, some kids, their stamina and their strength is kind of missing because of their, their premature development. So I'll talk with families about troubleshooting behaviors. So noticing when their child is struggling to finish and, you know, what to do, because as, as a parent, I am not a parent, but I sympathize with parents that it can be very frustrating when you're trying to feed your child and they're not eating. And that goes across, across the board for babies, toddlers, teenagers, it's frustrating and you feel like you're failing. And so teaching them how to troubleshoot, what are they doing? What are, what is their body language telling me? Cause oftentimes their language is also impacted or if they're a baby, we're not there yet. So reading, reading them and knowing what they're having difficulty with and how to, um, how to assist them the best way. So for babies, it's usually positioning, you know, looking for any signs of discomfort or distress. A lot of times babies who have like cardiac problems, other conditions, any sort of like craniofacial abnormality or something like that. Some kids who have like cleft palate, for example, their coordination paired with their anatomy is going to make it very difficult for them to, to finish a bottle and to get the nutrition they need. So it's really on a, on a case by case basis, what sort of problems we're dealing with and going in and teaching parents, like, I'm not going to be here, you know, every day to feed this bottle to your baby what are the skills I need to teach you to get this done? So how can you tell them? Um, so there's feeding therapy because they're having trouble with just, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of factors that affect feeding, but there's also swallowing challenges. And actually, I don't know if you know, if, if Alicia gave you the 411 on this, but I have, so I, I, I birthed four children and my neurotypical son, Tyler, was having from first grade through sixth grade, he was in speech therapy at school because of articulation issues. So he had a lisp, and um, for years. And I finally, by the sixth grade, I'm like, you know, I cannot be having this kid go into seventh grade um, with still this lisp, but really frustrated. I'm like, well, maybe this is just the way he's going to talk. And then a friend of mine who is an SLP says, well, you know, has the speech therapist at school ever addressed his reverse swallow? Like, and the old terminology was a a, for, a thrust, like a for a tongue thrust or a forward thrust. She says they're not. They're trying not to call it anymore because when you Google it, it, it really is not a really good thing to Google and what pictures show up. And so she says they're trying to. They're, the new terminology that they're really working on is reverse swallow. She says have they ever like addressed that? And I was like, wait, what? What are you talking about? She was like, well, he has um, his. You know, has have they ever? he's got a, a swallowing issue. And then I was like, so of course I, instead of, you know, and she's absolutely right. If you, re, you 
you know, Google the thrusting, the tongue thrusting thingy. It's like not a good thing, but the reverse swallow was really informative to me, which is kind of one of those things where I want to talk about too, like swallowing. When we're talking about swallowing, it never occurred to me until sixth grade that Tyler actually, a lot of his problems was a swallowing issue and that the way his tongue was moving in his mouth was actually reversed of what the normal movement is. And so that kind of, again, talking about feeding versus swallowing, how does that look and how does that really affect things like articulation? Because again, I didn't know this until sixth grade. So I had dealt with a lot of IEPs and, you know, forcing him to make good, you know, like TH sounds and S sounds and stuff. So can you give us more information on that? Because I feel like a lot of us parents, we don't know. We're not clued into this. Sure. Yeah. Well, and just, just a quick, you know, kind of parsing out feeding versus swallowing. Feeding kind of encompasses what you're doing to get the food in your mouth. And then when swallowing comes in is once, once you're ready for that food to go into your stomach, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen with your mouth. So that's where the swallowing comes in. And fun fact, I don't know if Alicia told you, um, I have a reverse swallow. I call it a tongue thrust, but that's my choice. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, uh, thing. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, tried to receive therapy. I say try to receive therapy because while my parents so graciously provided that for me in high school, I loved my therapist. She was an oral facial myologist, so they can also treat those things. I was a terrible, terrible um, patient <laughs> and I did not, I did not fix it. That was on me because I wasn't doing the home exercise program. Oh yes. Cause it is a whole, it's a whole, it's an exercise regimen people. I'm just telling you right here, right now, you got to be dedicated to it. Yes. And I was, you know, so enthralled with it, but I just did not keep up with it. So I, I am trying in my <laughs> ripe old age of 28 to continue to fix that because what, what that is, is when you reverse swallow, you're pushing your tongue against your teeth and against the front of your mouth, which is contrary to what you're supposed to do. And a lot of people don't even think about how they swallow. They just do it and they don't know right from wrong. They just do it. It's kind of the look I get my, I get from my boyfriend when I try to teach him things. That I do. <laughs> huh? I've never thought about yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Thinking about swallowing. That's the first step is like for Tyler, yeah. we had to teach him, we had to teach him to think about how he swallows. Yeah. And so with thinking about, um, the reverse swallow and you asked about how that could impact articulation with some of those, what we call fricative sounds. So like the S and the Z, um, those ones, we, we do have to put our tongue in a certain position for those. And I have a speech therapy friend who points out to me, she can see my tongue when I do my S sound, but, I, when I was, you know, learning how to speak, I corrected myself to make it sound less lispy, like less like a lisp, but you can still see my tongue peeking through indicating that it's not in the right place. So I, I kind of modified it myself. You still other kids, it rather I did. Yeah. I was aware of it, but for other kids, they might be aware that their sound is not coming out the right way, but they need a little bit more help with getting it into the right place. So if you are, ha- a, I keep wanting to call it a tongue thrust. If that's you okay. You have- go right ahead and call because that's what some people may know it as. I, I mean, it's to me, you know, regardless of what comes up when you Google it, um, 
to me, it's really describing what your tongue is doing. Your tongue is, is thrusting itself yeah. forward yeah. instead of um, being where it's supposed to be in the mouth. Yeah. Especially for Things school. that I was asked early on was, well, did he choke a lot when he was like, when he would drink or when he would eat? And it's like, you know, well, hindsight being 2020, like, yeah, you know, like in my mind, I thought, well, he just kind of sometimes is lazy about how he's, you know, swallowing in my mind. But a lot of it is like just that tongue motion. And, you know, if your tongue and how it's working, it would cause some like choking um, and aspiration, I guess maybe is what it is, is like, depending on how he was eating. And it was kind of like, oh, or, you know, and is it true that, and I don't know this to be true, because I never had any like close calls with Tyler, but they can be more prone to choking or, um, and I don't know if that's true, which again, I was like, um, oh, all the things you don't know. Maybe it's a good thing. I didn't know you had this earlier. I would have been more of a basket case, but but there are like indicators. I mean, sound articulation is like one of the first ones. Here's a quick question for you that you can answer is one of the reasons why I was, I was always very defensive about Tyler's list is because Tyler used a pacifier for a very long time. And so um, Tyler was allowed to use a pacifier because when his brother died, it was very traumatic. And so there was no way I was going to take this kid's beloved pacifier during that period of time. And so I actually let him have it up until like kindergarten. He would have to have it when he was in bed, but he still got to use it. And then all of the doctors and whatnot would tell me that the reason why he had a list was because I let him use the pacifier. And then also his teeth obviously bowed out a little bit too. And they said, it's because you let him use the pacifier. Well, once we took it away, it never really, it took a while to correct itself. They had indicated it was because of pacifier use. Is that, is there any correlation to a pacifier and the swallow? I don't actually know. That I actually think that. it's fun, but I just am throwing it out there because you guys scientists, you yeah. guys went to there, like to school for it. And I thought maybe there was research out there. I, I haven't personally read it. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But I mean, when you think about it at a certain point in our life, you know, sucking on a pacifier, sucking on something shaped like that is required for us to get our nutritional needs met. At a certain point in time, you transition away from, you know, suckling on an, on a nipple shaped item that could be a pacifier. It could be a thumb. My brother was a thumb sucker for a very long time. And your mouth is a very, very strong force of nature, your tongue, your jaw, it's very strong. So when you are constantly putting pressure on parts of your mouth that aren't necessarily supporting the natural development, so sucking your thumb, you're putting a lot of pressure on your thumb and it's actually going to change the shape of your mouth a little bit. My brother had to have internal headgear, the poor thing, um, just because of the way his his mouth shaped over the years. It kind of got a little narrow, had to have an expander, stuff like that. It could be that, that your son's anatomy was, was altered a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily say that that was the cause of a tongue thrust. Um, to be honest with you, of all of the kids that have had orthodontic, his was the easiest and the cheapest. Really? That's what I'm telling you guys is that now I kind of like, okay, orthodontists, dentists, and doctors, like Tyler had to wear braces for like eight months. That's it. Because, and he had one tooth that was up high that had to be pulled down. It wasn't because, you know, teeth were forward or anything like that. So it kind of was funny how like, um, in the big scheme of things, he was my cheapest child and he used the pacifier the longest. So. Well, there you go. Well, um, for 
whatever reason, I don't know why I have a tongue thrust to be perfectly honest. I wasn't, you know, hooked on a, on a thumb sucking or hooked on a pacifier or anything. I did do a weird thing with my tongue when I was younger, like a self-soothing thing. I would kind of like curl it back on itself. And I'm, I'm very into like smelling things. So I had a blanket that I would smell and that's what I did with my tongue. Not sure if that, you know, transformed itself into a tongue thrust or not, but you know, over the years of constantly doing it, every time you swallow, every time, you know, you're eating something, you're putting that pressure forward in your mouth and literally thrusting, you know, anatomy forward. So like, I still wear a retainer and a mouth guard at night because I know that my tongue thrust is not, it's hasn't resolved. That's on me. I'm a great patient. The great thing about what I learned is because Tyler had this and he was in speech therapy. We finally got it resolved in the seventh grade before he went. And it was like, honestly, like three months of really doing like therapy and just practicing the home exercises. It's a regimen people, but come to find out my daughter actually had the same thing. She had a list. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, like this one has the same thing. She has this, like this, you know, tongue thrust reverse swallow. And so we did the things with her and she was, um, of course, much younger. And it, I mean, it was like corrected overnight. So she actually never had to even go and see the speech therapist because we just used the same exercises because we knew. Um, and so it was really quite easy when she, because she was so young to have fixed it that early. I thought with Tyler, it was going to be kind of an uphill battle. Cause like what you're saying, he's been doing it. He's now in the sixth grade. He's been swallowing every day for his entire life. How are we going to actually retrain his brain um, to actually swallow? and get his tongue going in the right direction, but it did work. So there you go, everybody. So just, you know, we talked about swallowing and feeding, but how does feeding therapy, let's go back to feeding therapy. How does that manifest then as the kiddos get older? We talked about babies, but now let's talk about like our younger kids, because you kind of touched on earlier about sensory deflection. Again, some of um, the feeding aversions become a sensory issue. So can you talk a little bit about how, how that looks and kind of how, how you address that for some of those kiddos? Yes. So the kids that I see who have sensory, um, sensory aversions to food, they can manifest in a couple of different ways. So I try to categorize, categorize them in one of two groups of if they're a picky eater or if they're a problem feeder. And the difference, the main difference between them is how, how many different foods they have in their food inventory. So how many they're eating on a daily basis and accepting and how, how they react to new foods being presented to them. So I've had kids that, that feeding therapy has gone relatively quickly and I've, I've gotten to discharge them quick because they are they picky eater. So they, even though they don't accept a lot of foods, they do have at least 30 foods in their food inventory and they'll eat, um, they'll eat at least one food from most nutrition categories. So thinking in terms of like grains, dairy, meat, uh, vegetables, fruit, um, they also, uh, tolerate, they are more tolerant of food in their, in their area. So if that's on the table, on their plate, they're a little more tolerant to it. Problem feeder is also a picky eater, but in terms of their food inventory, they have, they accept 20 or less foods and both picky eaters and problem feeders experience burnout, meaning that they eat the same food 
all the time. Um, I'm sure you've talked to parents who are like, my kid only likes this brand of chicken nuggets. And you're like, Ooh, I hope they don't discontinue those. Cause that yeah. would suck. Oh, I have a great meme that I like to use. It's like a big, it's like a truck and it's like overloaded and it's kind of sideways with all of this, like these bags it looks like rice or corn or something. And I always tell people, it's like, this is me at Costco when I'm stocking up on the things that my picky eater will eat because God forbid, should that be discontinued? We got major problems, people, major problems. Now, Caleb has gotten tremendously better over the years, but when he was little, that was totally me. I would go and it's like, we have one brand of hummus and then like Costco all of a sudden wasn't carrying it anymore. And so then I got the new one. And I would present it to him and he would say, he'd push it back to say, that's not a match. That's what he would say to me. That's not a match. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh. So then I'm online trying to find it. It just was hell. And um, so then I did, Camille, you're going to just like shake your head at me. I did something that I shouldn't have done. So I saved the old container and then I put the new hummus that was not a match into the old container and then presented it to him for like, oh, here it is, found it. And then guess what happened? He was like, oh, they changed the recipe. I'm never eating it again because it was slightly different. So then I, I hosed myself because it wasn't a match. And then I now have changed his mental perception of what this product is. And so then he was just like, no, nope, I'm not going to eat hummus anymore. But the <laughs> one healthy thing I could get that kid to eat. So I know Camille, I'm a terrible parent, but you know, I'm desperate time to call for desperate measures. No, I tell, I tell my parents, I'm like, you're not a bad mom. You are doing your, or, or dad or grandma. You're not a bad caregiver. You are trying to get through day. And sometimes we try to take these shortcuts to see if it'll work. And we end up getting lost because we're like, oh, that was really, I just, I really got lost back there. I took the wrong turn. And the thing is, you know, had I actually really understood like the problem feeders and understood that it could have been as simple as the texture of how they ground up the garbanzo beans to make the hummus. But again, you know, I was just thinking like, you know, you're just being rigid. And as opposed to the fact that it was a feeding and an eating problem more so than just like, this is the brand that I like. It's the same thing between like, okay, they didn't have like the Cheez-Its brand. And so you went with like the, you know, the good value version of a cheese it. And again, like things are slightly different. The flavors are different, but even contextures can be different. And so uh, I long ago just opted to just not try and pull the fast one over um, because, it, you know, it was very clear that it was either like how the flavors are on his tongue or whether it was the texture of it. There's a lot more going on to what's going on in their mouth than what I originally as like a parent thinking I could outsmart him. Well, I think something that I try to remember as a therapist and what I try to remind caregivers is there was a point in time where they tried this food and they were like, this is my jam. But because of who they are and their sensory needs and their sensory aversions, they are very hesitant to try new things. And so I, I don't necessarily reason with kids that way because most of my kids are on the autism spectrum and their reasoning skills are not there yet or their communication skills are not there yet. And we're working on that as well. But what they need is patience and to show them that trying new things is okay. It's okay to say, no, thank you. It's okay to say, I don't like this, 
but we have to try. And that's, you know, not shoving it in their mouth immediately, but starting way, 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 way back being, being able to tolerate the food in their vicinity, talking about it, touching it, bringing it that much closer. So they are capable. Everybody is capable of trying a new food. It's just, it it blows my mind. I'm like, you like this food. You tried it at one point. How do we get you to try more? Yeah. So starting with what they like and modifying it a certain way, kind of like you said, I'm I'm not sure if you ever figured out why he he liked that certain brand, the texture, the color, the smell or something, but capitalizing on what they like and then changing it slightly to show them like, this is the same thing. We're going to like put it on a cracker versus just eating it on a carrot or something like that. Being oh my gosh, Camille, it's like you live with me because you know, here's the funny thing is, is that the hummus could only be eaten with like a, a cracker and it had to be a certain cracker. And then of course too, a carrot could never go into the hummus because it's somehow different. So the, the carrot is only to be used in ranch. And so that's, some of it is just kind of that, that rigid thinking, but Caleb has gotten older and now he's much more flexible to try different things. Um, Alicia will know um, a couple of things about Caleb. Fun facts about Caleb is number one, he hates green beans. It is one that when it went into his mouth, he like, it gags him. So he would, when he was little, we'd stick green beans in there and he would like physically like gag. And so we just avoided green beans. Grandma one time was visiting and she was determined to make him eat a green bean. And we were both like, that's a terrible idea. He, it, he gags and he threw up on the dinner table. So it's one of those things where we just don't even try it anymore. So Caleb during therapies, well, very, it was like a green bean. He draws the association. Alicia, his other thing, right? He does it like is pizza pockets. And that's yeah, one of those things where it's yeah. pocket. Yeah. He doesn't even like them cooked in our house. He gets very upset when his brother cooks them in the house because he smells them. Um, but now he's gotten better as he will not eat them, but he doesn't mind them being cooked in our home any longer. So it's like this whole like extension, like we're becoming more mature in the fact that he doesn't like them, but he will tolerate the smell of them being cooked. It may not be his favorite thing, but he will tolerate it, which is, that's a win. I mean, we're making some progress. Absolutely. Um, that's huge. Yes. He's very rigid on his brand of ranch dressing, but he will try it. Hey, this is like a different brand. Do you want to give it a try? Whether he likes it or will ever use it is a totally different story. But, and again, there's that question between, is this, you know, the picky eater? Is this like a problem with the feeding? Is it just that his rigid thinking of like, again, a cracker can go with hummus, but a carrot cannot. And so there's just so much, so much complexity when it comes to like autism spectrum disorders and those feeding nuances, if you will. And like I said, I, I've always told parents, like, don't try and get smart because what you can do, like I did, I accidentally made him like, no, it took us years and years and years and years to get him back into hummus again, because I had made that, that mistake. He just tried to. Well, and, uh, and to clarify too, just, just for our audience who is going to be listening to this, your, your child does just because your child is a picky eater does not mean that they're on the spectrum just because your child is on the spectrum doesn't mean they're going to be a picky eater. I have an, I have a new, um, kiddo on my caseload, super sweet has (laughs) a fixation on putting everything in his mouth, food, not a problem. He will eat anything, but I, I have another kiddo on my caseload who is very picky and very like, "Mm, what are you giving me? There's cheese on that. No, no, thank you. Not doing it. Yes. And what color cheese? 
I mean, like our, exactly. That's our world here. Is what color is the cheese? Can I see the package that the cheese came in? So you're absolutely right. Another, since we're talking about kind of busting some of the misconceptions of language and community, you know, and ASD and whatnot. Here's one question that I have: is is that is it possible to have kids that are on the autism spectrum that don't need speech therapy? Like whether it's that social pragmatics piece or articulation. Like I, again, I don't like the, the always and never that those absolute statements, but like, again, with Isaac, that our very first interaction with therapy and introduction to therapies was because we were first referred to speech therapy. And then bless her heart. It was the speech therapist that actually was the one that had to kind of gently say, you know, I think there might be more going on here. We should have an occupational therapist come in and do an assessment. And then it was the, you know, maybe once you have the OT and the speech on board, maybe we should do a a bigger evaluation to see if maybe we're talking about autism spectrum disorder. But when we talk about like speech language pathology, is it possible to have a kiddo that's that's diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder and never need to seek the services or support of a speech-language pathologist? I mean, so I want both of your guys' perspectives on this. Well, I think if we, you know, if we think about it from like, I'm going to get real nerdy, our DSM-5, so our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, we're currently on the fifth edition, the definition of like autism doesn't include anything about language. They, um, you know, when you look at like what can co-occur with this, a language disorder can co-occur, but in terms of like having to have that as part of your diagnostic criteria, you know, you, it's, it's not there. There's no, there's no backing for that. And I think because of some of the neurological variation that occurs when you have an autism spectrum diagnosis, you may have those difficulty with pragmatic skills, but even that I don't think is necessarily like a hundred percent, you know, and, and the challenges with pragmatics might look really different depend obviously in every child, they're going to look different in every person. They're going to look different. So, so I think, you know, kind of back to your question, Holly, can someone, you know, have an ASD diagnosis and not have a language diagnosis? I think absolutely. They're, they're not, that they are mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. You don't need one and the other. Yeah. What about you, Camille? How do you feel about that? I think it really depends on a person by person basis. Everybody is going to have different strengths and weaknesses and other people are going to want to improve what they deem in themselves as a weakness that they would like to strengthen. And that might not be in agreement with what the speech therapist thinks needs to be worked on. And so what I talk about with families and I reevaluate our goals every two months is what do you want to work on? Because just because I, from a clinical standpoint, think that that X, Y, Z needs to be worked on first, that might not be what the family wants to focus on. So I guess when I, when I heard your question, like, do they need it? It might be a matter of, yeah, they could use speech therapy, but they might not necessarily need it. It comes from a place of acceptance of themselves and how they feel about themselves. I just had a conversation with Alicia yesterday about a client I had, and I had a heart to heart with him. He was a middle school student and he was not on the spectrum, but just really didn't wasn't engaged in speech therapy. And I asked him, I was like, if this is not something that you see 
yourself having a problem with, we don't have to do speech therapy because if you are not going to work on it on with yourself and it, it's not important to you, that's, that's completely your choice. I'm going to talk to your caregiver about it and we're going to, I'm going to put you on hold and reevaluate, um, maybe give you a break. But from what, from my perspective, I told him, I think that you need speech therapy, but if you don't think that you need it and you're not going to do the home exercise program, then speech therapy is not right for you right now. So I, I really try to take into consideration of what strengths they have and what they can improve on and what they want to improve on in themselves. I think that is a really, really good point. And I'm actually really glad that you say that because I actually have once a year, um, one of the professors at WSU asked a panel of parents to come in and talk to um, the students there about you know, kind of the parents' perspective, because I do think it's really important that clinicians understand all the the factors and have, like a special needs parenting life. This is what our life looks like. Because one, you know, like it's really easy, and I was very guilty of this early on. I was very, I was a very judgy autism parents of other parents. Like I don't understand why every parent doesn't have their kid in speech therapy. I don't understand why all parents don't do X, Y, and Z. And you know, having now four kids, and this not being my first autism rodeo you're in seasons, you know, like what your focus is and kind of what your capacity and ability to kind of deal with at any given time can dictate what therapy interventions you're going to seek out. But also there comes a season even with the kiddos, because that's the thing too, is if they are not happy with what they're doing or, and, and they just, you know, they, you have to have the buy-in from the kiddo. You have to have, it has to be the right season for the family to be able to engage in it. But it also needs to be the right season and the right place. They, they have to be emotionally invested in that therapy intervention because they want to get a goal out of it. They want to meet a goal. Otherwise, you know, why are we doing that? So I think it's really nice, you know, to hear that. So again, this parent panel is about just helping providers to understand those seasons. And again, as an equal part of that is that your client, um, the student that you're working with is really invested in it. You know, I am, and and this also goes to, I apologize, I don't want to offend either one of you guys, understanding that providers work with different kids in different ways. And so if the kid is not connected and not vibing with that provider, you know, it is okay to just say, you know, like maybe we need to look at a different provider that can really get that kid emotionally invested and really wanting to hit some of those goals. And and so I do tell, I'm a big advocate and I tell families all the time, it's all about finding that right provider that's going to work and jive with your kid. There are times where I have loved a provider. In fact, I went walking today with um, a provider, love her, love her, love her. And she worked with one of my kiddos, um, Tyler, and, and he worked really hard for her then. But I was teasing him today, right before I went to go walk with her. And he says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to walk with your old provider and, you know, said the name. And he was just like, you're not going to make me start seeing her again. And I was just laughing because I was like, well, you know what? Maybe I should. But again, emotionally, emotional buy-in. Like he worked really well with her at the time because that was the season and we needed her services. But now if I, you know, he's 16 now, if I was, I would never do that to my dear friend because like he's, again, not the right match. It's not the right season. He wouldn't work hard for her. You know, we have worked with other um, SLPs in the past with Caleb. And it was fine. We worked, we met, met, met those goals. And then I was very comfortable exiting out of speech therapy. And then it was the social pragmatic piece kind of became back kind of into the forefront. And it was like, we need to find a new provider. 
And I was really lucky to find Alicia because we just happened to be matched with schedules. And Caleb actively wants to see Alicia. We took a little bit of a break for a month and it was when when do I get to see Alicia again? And that to me tells me that we have the right match. And, and, and again, I can have a wonderful relationship with some of these providers, but I also have to recognize that that doesn't mean it's the right provider for my child. And I'm just really lucky that Alicia, I adore you. I love so much about you, you as a person and just your practice and what you're moving towards. But I'm really lucky because Caleb is emotionally like connected to you too. And that's what makes your guys' combination magic. Um, and so, and that makes it a nice little segue to kind of talk about speech therapy and how other things that we can be looking for, you know, yes, there is expressive language challenges, there's receptive language challenges. Um, but Alicia, I feel like right now we have a real eclectic set of goals for Caleb right now, at least from my perspective, they're not what I would consider. Most people may not consider to be SLP goals, right? Um, but they yeah. very are, they're very important. So, you, you know, like, so I'm giving you full carb blanche to talk about Kaylin and some of the goals that we've come up with, because I want people to understand that we can think outside of the box when it comes to SLP services. Can we talk about that a little bit? Do you mind? Sure. One of the things that, you know, we really notice as something that Caleb has a difficult time with is that problem solving or planning piece. So when he's thinking about you know, when he's, when he's reading something, it's like reading the paragraph, he can read all the words on the page. There's no problem with that. But where that difficulty lays is like understanding some of the nuance or understanding large chunks of information. So, you know, how much can he read before we get to a point where the comprehension will fall apart? So thinking about expanding on that, I should pull up his uh, lesson or his therapy plan. That's okay. Some Speak of them are really specific about um, follow, like following instructions. And, you know, some of yes. them are related to reading comprehension and yes. like pausing after certain points and checking for understanding. And then also being able to be more organized in how he thinks about like multiple sentences, like organizing like paragraphs, even like how he retells a story. Like sometimes when he retells a story or he's explaining something, it's kind of like we're kind of jumping to four different things. It's like, oh, I got to back up because I forgot to mention la, 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 because, you know, it gets to a certain place in the story where he realizes, oh, well, I probably should have mentioned X, Y, and Z. So he can be a little disorganized in how he retells a story. But then that also translates in terms of how he then conveys a thought idea, a thesis. That's one of the, his goals for school is a thesis, a paragraph, or, you know, a short thesis on, you know, like, you know, summarizing the story. But so those are some of his goals, but some of them have to do with instructions, like re- being able to, you know, follow instructions. Like some of the things that you actually have, like his homework assignments are cooking macaroni and cheese, which people sounds like, wait, his speech therapy homework is cooking macaroni and cheese. And it is a very useful homework um, assignment because we're working on his ability to read the instructions all the way through go back and then start being able to piece it apart and follow the instructions in a sequential order and execute on that. Yeah. So, and the, you know, part of the reason we picked read or, you know, doing macaroni and cheese was like, we identified something that he liked and it's something that he can do 
independently. So it's, it's helping him move towards that. Like one day Caleb is going to be a fully formed adult and he needs to be able to feed himself. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, my kind of, one of my biggest things is making as many of our goals meaningful in as many situations as possible. So exactly like you said, Holly, one of the things that we are working on a lot is reading instructions. And like his goal right now is just when there is something put in front of you, you have to read all the instructions. It's, you know, we're not even getting to following instructions all the time yet. It's just like, did, did you read them? And, you know, reading them without being prompted to do so and reading them completely. And that's where right now Caleb will just sit there and it's like, what are you doing, Caleb? You're just sitting there. Well, I don't know what to do. Did you look Mm -hmm. for instructions? (laughs) Yes. Step one, look for the instructions and then read it. That's something that for so many kids, I think is really missed because we harp on this, like, you know, reading comprehension, you need to read a novel and understand it and write it exactly like you said, write a thesis about it and compare and contrast and do all of this. And these kids are sitting there like deers in the headlights in class or, you know, fighting with mom and dad doing homework. And it's really all it comes down to is like, there is a piece of paper in front of you. What is the first thing you need to do? Or like, you know, you have a homework assignment what is step one a, and it's just, you know, kind of coming back and thinking about that big picture piece and training to like, when you're looking at instructions, you know, so one of the other things we're working on is we're calling them action words. So finding the words within the instructions of what do you do with your brain or what do you do with your body? What is this telling you to actually do? And then also, you know, figuring out how many steps are in the instructions. So then he can go back and check it off. Yes. So, you know, is this one step or is this five steps? Because sometimes there can be five steps in one sentence of instructions. Oh, that is so true. That is so true, Alicia. And I'm so dialed into this right now because we're in virtual learning world. So, so everything is them having to be able to follow a set of instructions, which is really challenging for him to be yeah. able to do that. At the step of bringing hand apart, find those action words. Am I having to think about something or am I having to actually do something? So you're absolutely right. That is definitely a thing. The other thing that I think is really interesting is, again, thinking outside of the box and maybe like all speech therapists do this. And maybe it's just that, you know, we didn't stick with speech therapy the first time long enough to have seen this played out. But one thing that I love about kind of some of your goals is, is helping Caleb be able to come up with graphic organizers to help him become organized. You're talking about having him become organized, even just with communication. And like, okay, I have all these thoughts in my head of things I want to communicate. So how can I get those thoughts organized? And so that's using like a graph, you know, how do we, how can we use some visual supports to help him become organized with even just the thoughts that are rolling around in his head? Mm-hmm. Because that is a real challenge when you got just so much in there. I know I'm struggling with this just even as an adult, there's so much in my head. How do I get it out in a way that I can then start organizing it? And I think that exactly goes to thinking about, I mean, it's kind of a pragmatic skill because a lot of the kids that we see, they want to, they are trained to write something in a complete sentence. So that is the only way that they think about writing. Um, So when we kind of change that way of like, okay, instead we're going to write bullet points. You can only write one word to describe whatever this is, or you can write three words to describe what this is. So we're looking for that like context. Do they understand how meaningful words can be. I have, um, you know, example of a a student I used to work with that 
we were playing, we we're basically playing headbands, that game where you put the card on your head. And so we had to write three bullet points to describe what the other person had on their head. And I had a teacher and she wrote happy, pretty, and hair. And I have to guess from those three words that this is a teacher, you know, that's our baseline. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is a very abstract, you know, of course people are having a hard time understanding you. Of course you have an expressive language disorder because your ability to come up with meaningful content is really, really impacted. And so we work through that. I mean, we played headbands for like six months, um, you know, but to a point that she could give me three words and I could figure out like ladder or, you know, something that was a little bit more complicated. So when we're talking about this, one of the things that I have noticed with Caleb early on was we, at first we thought Caleb was a stutterer, but when we're talking about like having all of those things in his head, um, I don't know that it was really classical stuttering. And I don't, you guys would have to just tell me the difference between like true stutter versus that there was just too many things in his head and not organized enough in his ability to be able to stick with the train of thought, if you will. And so then it was almost like he was stuttering or stammering. So is that, again, it's not classic stuttering. I don't think he was ever officially diagnosed with that, but is that, that's pretty common then for a lot of kids with communication challenges? It's a linguistic tool. So, you know, what a lot of the kids that we see are doing that have that behavior that kind of seems like a stutter. So to have a true stutter, you have to have that reduplication of sounds, which, or it could be words or it can be sentences. And there also has to be some element of tension associated with it. So you're physically feeling stuck somewhere within your speech muscles and speech apparatus. Um, and so when we're doing stuttering therapy, we're helping that individual relax so that they can speak through something. Um, when we have this kind of, I don't know if I, I guess I'm going to call it pseudo stuttering because it's not true stuttering, but you're making those reduplications. It can serve a couple different purposes. One is to show their listener. So it's a pragmatic skill. I'm showing you my listener that I have something to say. I just don't know what that something is yet. So I'm holding that place and that space in the conversation by just saying, um, or like, or, uh, 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 and then I can get something out. Stammering more. Cause I didn't really feel like it was a stutter. It was like, he was just, he would just get stuck. And then it was the, um, or it was, and so, and so, and so, and so, you know what I mean? Because I think he was still trying to get organized. Exactly. I was going to say having the privilege of knowing and working with Caleb, sometimes that he has that idea and that mental picture in his mind, but putting all the words into an order that is going to be meaningful to another person is a challenge. And, And with a lot of the students that we work with, with either executive function challenges. So uh, diagnosis like ADHD, or maybe they have dyslexia, which is um, a learning disability. They, that organizational piece can be really, really challenging. And so you will see things like there's a term called circumlocution. So you're talking around something. So rather than saying a word like backpack, I might come into the room and say, mom, I really need that thing. It goes on my back. It has straps, my books are in it, uh, you know, and, and so you're having those, those word finding skills and you're talking around a specific subject. You're not using a lot of really specific terminology. So some of that can be 
like that language recall and language organization. And then you also have the pragmatic piece kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, where the individual doesn't think that they need to provide their listener with that specific information. They haven't quite, you know, put together, oh, this person is not actually inside my brain. And so when I say she, they have no idea who I'm talking about. Yes. That's, oh, we had to work on that for years with Kayla because it would be a she. And it's like, you need to be more specific because they haven't been following you around all day. So they don't know who she is. So it's like, oh, my grandma. Okay, good. Now at least she knows we're talking about grandma. She's building the picture in her head of what you're telling her. But again, it's been, you know, a long road. Okay, we're going to take a break at this point and we will continue back talking about speech and feeding therapy next time on part two of this episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.